Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and welcome back to my favorite time of the week. And as part of the Inspiring Leadership series, I'm with Roger Steer, who I've known for about 15 years and have a huge respect for him as the corporate philosopher, particularly at Cass Business School, where he's the corporate philosopher in residence. Roger um, has touched and moved a number of clients that I know by his, his first book here, which was called Ethicability. And then more recently, he's been quite innovative in the way he's created this, uh, the latest book, Thinking Outside the Inbox, which I find very interesting and very challenging, which is why I want Roger on this series. Uh, Roger, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Lovely. It's lovely to be here. Lovely having you here. Um, th the first thing I'm really interested in is um, you've done a range of different things. Do you want to just in a, in a nutshell, give us a little bit about your life? Yeah, I'm not a typical CV. So I really am the son of a preacher man. I then read history of Western philosophy at university with Conrad Russell, the son of Bertrand Russell. Not that old, it was Bertrand. Yeah. Um, I then played safe and got a job in banking, which I found really boring. And apologies to all the bankers out there. <laughs> it was retail banking, no derivative trading. And uh, then I dropped out and became a residential social worker with teenagers in care and got my MBA in life. I then put my knowledge of banking and delinquency together and became a headhunter in the city, <laughs> which many people find, mm hmm uh, Ended up running a subsidiary of ADECO, which is the world's mm -hmm. largest employment agency. So I've done my corporate uh, CEO role. Um, and then I had a disagreement with the group CEO. I left, he didn't. Um, and I started doing this work, which is around helping uh, leaders at work um, think about their purpose, their values, their decision making and their behaviours as a moral philosopher mm. uh, almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and, and I know a number of the organisations that you uh, doing some great uh, both speaking, facilitation, going in and challenging them around the whole area of ethics, moral integrity, but, but also leadership. And in your, in your experience, you've, had, you've seen good and bad, you've seen healthy leadership, you've seen toxic. You know, what has inspired you? What skills of leadership has inspired you or who has inspired you? Yeah, well, that's a great question. It's probably the most important question. And sadly, as, as, you, as I, I know you know, Jonathan, 80% of my work has come from organizations who've been in a bad place. Mm. So oil and gas companies who've had an incident, a major incident, um, almost all of the UK banking organizations, uh, a couple of international banks, who've all found themselves in a bad place. So I've actually been called in to help understand where misleadership has yeah. got them into the wrong place. And I, I would say that it's not because the people are bad as such. I mean, clearly there are people who display, you know, what psychologists call the dark triad behaviors of narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. But because the system is rigged against humanity, mm -hmm. um, where people are not paid to care for other human beings, 
they're paid to focus on the short-term bottom line. Mm. And it's not only destroying lives and businesses, it's also, in my view, destroying our ecosystem. All right. Uh, and that is a major issue that's going on right now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Which we'll talk about in, in the second half in, in the uh, Inspired Leadership Extra. So anybody in particular that, you, that you'd say or a particular trait, skills that you see as good leadership? So I'm, I, um, I always hesitate about saying that an individual is a yeah. great leader because I think you're a hostage to fortune mm. then. Mm. And part of that is because I don't really see leadership as a positional or status attribute. Leadership for me is a skill. Yeah. And uh, if you take a large bank, for example, who leads the bank when it comes to someone in a branch or in a contact center talking to a customer? Mm. And the reality is it's that person, that, that teller or the contact center colleague who leads the bank in that, in that conversation. Yeah. And, and I would say that one of the things I've learned over the last 20 years is that hierarchical uh, management, and I use that word deliberately, tends to get organizations into a bad place. The solution for that is to give people the chance to lead mm. in those organizations. And my experience is, and I'm sure everybody um, that you, you work with and people listen to this will know that most human beings can do the most amazing things, and in particular, under real pressure. Mm. So I characterize it by pe ordinary people doing extraordinary jobs, not at work, but actually as a son and a daughter, a parent, um, a friend, um, when loved ones are, you know, uh, being diagnosed with cancer or uh, a teenager's, you know, on drugs, that's where leadership is displayed. And we have this weird ability to sort of dumb down that, that trait that almost all of us have to display those inspiring leadership skills. Yeah. Uh, and I want to go into that in more detail uh, in the second part. And, and, and now you as a person, yeah, you, you've been a leader in different places. Interesting enough, a decade brought my old firm, Penna, where, yes. I, where I used to be, but long after I'd left. Yeah. And... Um, and as a leader in those early days, when you look back, you know, do you ever go, oh, no, really? What did I do? I mean, what was the sort of biggest mistake as you look back in, yeah. in your style of leadership? And what did you learn from it, which has shaped you as a leader now? OK, so um, it's something I've learned about myself. And I don't think you ever quite uh, solve it because I think that we have some fundamental character strengths and weaknesses. I know what my weakness is and I'll characterize it by explaining what happened when I first took the moral DNA profile, which is the psychometric I've developed to give us a moral mirror as to our to the values we believe in, the way we think and make ethical decisions. And I, I got the report and I showed it to my wife who knows me well. And, um, and she started laughing. I said, why are you laughing? And she said, well, have you seen your humility score? And I said, no, is it good? She said, well, it's one out of nine, Roger. <laughs> she called me Poppet. And, and uh, I said, am I arrogant? She said, no, but you're very confident in the way you work and what you believe in. But I thought about it a lot. And, and I think the weakness I have to guard against is that move from confidence into arrogance. Mm. Um, and particularly, you know, you and I work as individual gig economy experts. 
when you're on your own, you need to have that grounded confidence. And the same is true if you're working as a leader within an organization. And be very, very careful about that fine line between confidence and hubris. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the lesson I have to continually um, you know, challenge myself around. Yeah. Yeah, I recognise that you know, the ego is the enemy, as they say. The ego is the enemy. Yeah, and, and finally, Roger, um, just in this part, what would be your, your top tip for uh, listeners out there about inspiring leadership? What would you give them as a practical <clears throat> tip? Because you are a very practical man in your advice. Yes. So my practical tip is this. Um, I, uh, it's, there are three English words that derive from the Latin word for soil or ground, which is hummus, not the Arabic word for chickpea puree. Uh, with olive oil and tahini, but the Latin word H-U-M-U-S, which give us three words, and they define what it means to be a human and a leader. And they are humanity, humility, which is my weakness, and humor, because psychological safety is critical uh, for us to find the joy in our work, to have fun. And when we do that, the most amazing things happen. Roger, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for being with Thank us. Thank you, Jonathan. And good luck with helping organizations to be um, more self-aware of this area. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Hi, this is Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to Inspiring Leadership Extra, where I'm once again with Roger Steer. And uh, Roger, uh, we're going to uh, perhaps talk about you and your life. You said you're the son of a preacher, man. I find that a really great story. Tell me a bit about you, yourself and your journey, which has shaped the man you are today and the work you do. Thank you, Jonathan. And I promise I'm not going to do the Tina Turner version of Son of a Preacher Man. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, I think it's really important for all of us to be aware of our life's journey. Some people call it the river of life. But I think you know, I'm a real believer that uh, our experiences shape us uh, probably more than our um, uh, basic DNA, our inherited mm. DNA. I'm a great believer in that. And I was very lucky in so far as I had a very, um, I think, safe and fun upbringing. My childhood was a joy. Mm. Um, you know, I would characterize my parents as being quite tough church people, but it was tough love. And they certainly gave me the space to play. And I was always laughing and joking. Um, and they encouraged that. They also encouraged me to work really hard at school. Um, and, and so I did. And um, I would say certainly my teenage years were not a time of rebellion for me. They were a time of conformity because, you know, they were without being, you know, I think, too bullying at all. They were very encouraging of me. And I did quite well at school. I got good A levels, a couple of S levels. I went to the Royal Grammar School in High Wycombe. And just staying with the upbringing, I'm curious and forgive me for interrupting, but I wanted to hear about your father and your mother and their value set, because of course we're dealing mm. with morals and values and integrity mm. as, your, as your, your specialism that you help so many people really reflect on. What is it do you reckon they've both given you in your own value set? Yeah, so um, when I mean when I mention tough love, I mean that. And so what I mean by tough love, and I used to use this phrase as a CEO, divisional CEO at ADECO, is to be tough on the issues. In other words, confront the brutal truths of our mm -hmm. existence, but actually deal with them with love and humanity and care. And I think That's the good. two is a really powerful combination. 
and I would sort of reflect on all of the work I've been doing throughout my life and my working life is that bad things tend to happen when people avoid the the truth. That is so good. Can you sort of pick up on that for a moment? Because I was with um, a CFO earlier and he was talking about his CEO and he's a lovely guy. It's a, it's a tech business, but the CEO doesn't want to confront difficult issues and indeed probably hired many of his mates mm. and friends and so can't fire anybody. And so difficult issues are not really tackled. Mm. And they, they all are busy doing stuff down the weeds, but they're not getting onto the strategy. And, and I think that's a major problem, you know, mm. to not confront the difficult issues. Yeah, I think you're right, Jonathan. And I certainly found that professionally, not as a banker at the age of 21 to 23, but as a residential social worker yeah. with kids in care from inner London. And these were... These were 10 to 16-year-olds who were too challenging for children's homes but weren't so bad they had to be locked up in a detention centre. So what I learned from that was that the inability of their parents, their communities, to provide them with a safe space to explore you know, how to grow up, but to to actually have boundaries was really important. And the point about the truth is that unless you confront people with consequences, and I don't mean, you know, punishment, but the consequences for doing mm. the wrong thing, is that actually you're doing them a disservice. So you're not being kind by allowing people to get away with things. And isn't that part of the problem with the sort of helicopter mums and dads that um, me and my generation, your generation have been with our children, that we've in some ways tried to swamp them with love, we think, or give them everything they want or all their iPhones. But there's no boundaries and uh, no darling, you can't do that. It just, and therefore they run amok in some cases. Yeah, and I don't think it does us any good if we don't have those boundaries. So one of the things I learned as a residential social worker was that psychological safety was a function of giving them the boundaries that no one had the courage to give them before. And I remember, so these were the bad old days where you, I was recruited as a grade three, four residential social worker with no training. Really? I actually went in at the deep end. They must have seen something in my character. And it was hell for the first two weeks. Those yeah, kids tried to break me. Yeah. And we're talking about tough kids, ethnic minorities from inner London boroughs who were on drugs, sniffing glue, literally throwing chairs and smashing windows. Yeah, yeah. And the one thing I knew I had to keep doing was to keep turning up, to keep confronting the behavior. And all of a sudden it was like a, a switch flipped. After two weeks, they'd obviously all had a chat in the dorm to say, well, Roger's all right, he cares enough to take all our crap. Yeah. And they started to say, when's Roger coming on duty? And I suspend my time playing pool, playing in the gym with them because they just felt safe. Yeah. And they knew I really cared for them because I was prepared to put up with all their crap. Yeah. But that must have been also been a tough time to be in the social work. You know, when you look back at some of the homes and the abuse that's gone on. And all oh, sorts. yeah. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right, Jonathan. And I've you know, uh, you know, hand on heart, I never saw or felt there was anything untoward going on in the home where I was working, which was effectively what used to be called a borstal in the yeah, UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's appalling the way that children are damaged for life mm. by, um, you know, the power, the abuse and, and the abusive power that adults have over them. 
Well, this is what's so interesting in the work that Lee, my wife's doing uh, with our charity, the Inspiring Leadership Trust, where we're now working with girls in the sort of 16 up, particularly on county lines mm. and working alongside the serious organised crime in the Home Office, where they've got multiple county lines and these girls are being abused and being used to deliver drugs and all the rest that goes with it. But it, it, you just realise just how damaged people are and they, it, it takes a lot to get them back and get them on to having a somewhat normal life after they've been through things. Absolutely. And one of the things that I was actually thinking about only this morning, Jonathan, is the way that so many people in senior leadership roles in business who are effectively multimillionaires, let's be yeah. honest about this, are actually detached from that reality. Yeah. They do not see and hear and experience the lives that most people have no. to live. No. And in fact, if they did, it would change the way they think sure. and feel about their own lives. And it would also give them faith in the spirit, you know, the resilience of human spirit and the huge amount of good that goes on, um, you know, with the family and friends of these um, kids who are trafficked yeah. and who are used um, on, with county lines, drug trafficking yeah. and so on. Because it, it, it's a really interesting point when you get so detached um, and so privileged, um, I, I find it, it's almost like going back to the floor constantly. You need to go back and, and see the reality. But also some of these people um, get so much of a diva complex that they think, do you, do you know who I am? You know, do you know who I am? No, well then fuck off. Um, <laughs> what the response. But um, so they therefore in their own way are abusing the people who work for them mm. and they won't do this and they won't do that, but they expect to be given VIP treatment where people who are earning a fraction of what they earn uh, are grubbing around having a very tough time. It's interesting because I, I'm, I'm quite sensitive to that symbology um, and I, I remember when and I'm going to name this individual because it's, you know, it's not a secret, but I've worked for many years with Joe Garner, who's currently the CEO at Nationwide Building Society. And I, um, I started working with him on day six of his tenure there. And one of the things he proposed on day six after our first offsite um, was that they dismantled the executive office suites on mm. the top floor of the head office mm. in Swindon. Um, and it was a collective decision because he quite rightly felt that that status symbol of privilege was really bad for the culture of a mutual, the UK's yeah. largest, the world's largest building society, but also um, it was a very poor economic use of office space. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all the time I've known him, Joe has always had a desk in an open plan office. He has mm. the CEO's office where he goes for meetings. But it's, it's actually dismantling all those trappings of power, yeah. which are actually critical to developing what I call true leadership skills, where it comes from your moral character and your presence. Uh, not charisma, don't like that word but people trust you yeah. as a fully paid up member of the human race rather than a very spoiled child. Yeah. And I, I have this sixth sense and I'm, you know, one of my other weaknesses, I mentioned uh, potential lack of humility, but I have this real thing against bullying and the abuse of power in the yeah. workplace. 
And I've often argued that whilst we have stringent physical HSE legislation, so physical health and safety, there is no law about psychological, psychological bu bullying yeah. in the workplace. And it's crazy on two reasons. The first and most important is it dehumanizes people. Mm -hmm. Because as one economist famously said, bosses want capitalism for themselves and Stalinism for their staff. That's very good. Because there is no democracy within the workplace unless you happen to be in a democratic workplace and there are not many around. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know this, this whole feudal hierarchy is one that leads to bad outcomes. And the worst outcome is, uh, I would say, a, a diminution in economic efficiency of over 50%. If people are, f are feeling fear, there are three responses to fear. Fight, which they don't because they'll lose their job. Flight mm. or freeze. And most people freeze. Yeah. And, and then these bullying bosses begin to wonder why their productivity is through, going through the floor. Well, this is exactly the conversation I was having with Tim Wilson earlier, that um, when he looked back at people in the military, but also in business, that sometimes you get this, this old command and control, you know, directive bullying style, and people were frightened of these people, but it doesn't enhance performance. People almost seize up, their cogs, their, their seize up in, in their thinking, let alone in their behavior, and they just try and survive. I remember the, um, the boss I worked for in the military when I was um, his assistant, and, and he was, yeah, he was a psychopath and he would frighten the living daylights out of people and tear people apart psychologically mm. and, and belittle them. And I just thought, this is awful. And mm. I, of course, I began to seize up as well. I just lived my life in fear of getting it wrong and being caught out. And, mm. and of course, that's not the way to, to be creative or innovative or bring your best self to work. Mm. So... I deliberately hijacked you there on a very interesting series of thoughts. Going back to um, your life journey, hmm. um, so so, tell me, pick up the, the pick up the story. So um, so yes, yeah, so um, I, I think that the next key thing was having done the social work. I then I was burnt out after three years because it's really hard work, and I'd got married for the first time. And being a social worker is difficult when it comes to a mortgage. So I tried to get back into the city as a banker and, uh, and I, was, um, I was hired by a city recruitment business, which eventually got taken over by ADECO. Um, and I became the CEO. Um, looking at my history as a recruiter, as a resourcer, as it's called these days, which I hate because we're people, we're not human resources, human resources yeah. or human remains, remains as, yeah. <laughs> as they, as they tend to call it. So I'm much happier with the term people and culture, so chief people officer or whatever it is. Um, I would always, as a recruiter, uh, I would always match people's character with the culture of the firm, mm. almost irrespective of their CV. And I later read a quote from the former chairman of Porsche Cars, Peter Schutz, who said, higher character, train skill. Yeah. And the problem we have in the workplace today is we hire skill and try and train character. Yeah. Bad move. Yeah. Really bad move. We can all learn skills and leadership is one of those skills, but actually you cannot be, you cannot display great leadership as a skill unless you have a strong moral character. So, so talk to us about moral character. And of course this, this is, you know, your, your 
area that's fascinated you for some time, moral integrity, moral character. Yeah. Tell, tell us a bit about this. What, what do you reckon moral character is? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, this is pretty much my life's work from, you know, being a son of a preacher man to reading history of Western philosophy with Conrad Russell to the work I've been doing for the last 20 years and my experience as a divisional CEO. So um, I like to explain things simply. So... Uh, I will use the three words that moral philosophers will understand, which are the three, if you like, philosophical traditions. They are consequentialism, sometimes called utilitarianism. There's um, virtue ethics and there's deontology. Uh, I've translated that into people. In other words, doing the right thing is doing what's right for other people. Yeah. Uh, virtue ethics we call values. So in other words, and moral values. So when I'm working with people and their organizations and I see a set of values, I'll say, well, all well and good, but teamwork is not a value, a moral value, it's an outcome, um, an outcome from certain moral values. And there's only limited number of them, such as fairness, uh, humility, and so on. And then deontology, I call rules. Mm. And uh, uh, and then, you know, within those values, we uh, I also look at the moral values and developed moral DNA as a way of assessing those. And anyone for fun can go to moraldna.org and take the profile. So I have done, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's free to wear for personal use because it helps us build a database. And we have over 200,000 profiles. But effectively, people begin to understand that moral philosophy is not a weird, you know, obtuse fear of you know field of study we do it all the time people are making ethical or moral decisions all the time because one of the interesting i find when you are with large audiences and they are captivated but also you make some people very uncomfortable like oh i don't want him back again you know it's, it's, almost, like, it's almost like they, they talk about the thing like in victorian as we don't talk about this you know uh, why, why do you think that is that some some take to it and others just really do, do big organ rejection, don't want to talk about Yeah, this. so, and that's, and that's a hierarchical thing. So I find the vast majority of people are leaning in. Um, and, you know, like me, Jonathan, you do a lot of gigs, mm. as we call them. And, uh, you know, you and I are able to get an audience at ease because they, don't, they want to know that whoever stood up is going to do a great job. And, and while you're at it, one of the interesting um, ethical issues I find, some of these very wealthy firms go, oh, could you do this for free? Hmm. And I go, okay, so, so you make a lot of money in your business, but you want me to give my skills and knowledge and experience, which I accumulated over a number of years, for free to a hmm. big corporation? How does that fit in? Yeah, absolutely. Where is the, the value in that? Do you, do you yeah. find they sometimes try? Uh, to sometimes, but I'm not, quite, often, not, not often, but yes, sometimes it happens. I'll just say, well, look, is everybody else in the room for free? Is no one drawing a salary? Because yeah. if they are, they'll do it for free. Yeah. But I bet you that you're being paid a salary and a dividend and all the rest of it. Yes, yeah. good point. But I think, I think that most people are leaning in. Hmm. Uh, most people want to do the right thing and want to do it better. Um, and people are very engaged by it because I always try to follow Einstein's dictum, which is unless you can explain something simply, you don't understand it. And that's why, for example, yeah. people enjoy this because I, I have uh, reduced, and it's not a pejorative word, reduced the complexity of moral philosophy into its component parts. That doesn't mean to say it's easy. No. 
I make it simpler, but it's just as hard. It's just that people are then able to talk about it in a way and to argue about what is right using those three lenses of people's values and rules. The problem we have in the workplace is that and we measure how we make ethical decisions in our personal lives and then how we do so in our professional lives. There is a systemic phenomenon which is consistent across every organization I've worked with of any size, which is that from our norms where people, values and rules are balanced, because mm. obviously we have a normative uh, set of, of outcomes, when we come to work, the rules dominate yeah. our decision-making. So the deontological perspective dominates and the one that suffers is our people lens. And what we get is what we call a phenomenon we call robotic compliance. Mm. And it's closer to the ethos of, shall I say, North Korea yeah. rather than Norway. And I always ask people, where would you rather live, Norway or North Korea? No one yet has said they would prefer to live in North Korea. And that is because a compliant workplace has nothing to do with ethics or doesn't have to do anything with ethics. So compliance is about power. It's yeah. not about morality. Now, in a just society or in a fair organization, if you like, the circles of ethics and rules overlap a lot. Yeah. But actually, if you believe that being compliant, it makes you ethical, you are sadly mistaken. So do you find the whole area of chief compliance officer and chief risk officer is a bit of a challenge for you? Um, no, because in fairness to them, most of them understand this. It's yeah. just that the uh, regulation as a profession really has it wrong. And it's, and it's driven in part, I would say, um, from a US perspective. Mm. So there's a fundamental difference in the law in the US and the law in, uh, in Europe, for example. European law outside of Na the Napoleonic uh, countries tends to be principles driven. In the US, it's rules driven. And if, you know, I just had to complete a, a US uh, withholding tax form which, and I'm not stupid, but I actually had to ask my accountant to do because it was about 10 pages long. I had no idea what half the questions yeah. you know, were asking about. And it didn't mean to say I'm not trustworthy and all the rest of it. It's just that when we believe that doing the right thing is simply following orders, ha ha, bad things tend to happen. And talking about bad things, I've, I've been dying for you to talk to us a bit about you know, narcissists, white collar mm -hmm. psychopaths, bullies. Um, how do people cope with people like that? And, and what's a, a healthy way of them surviving, apart from clearly the best thing to do is to leave working for someone like that? Yes. Yeah, so, um, and how do, they, how do they spot those kind of behaviours? Yeah. Some are obvious. So let, let me start from that last question, because I am shocked at the number of senior appointments to firms where the executive has not psychologically profiled. Yeah. Now we believe, and I'm not sure if this is still true, but e even if you drive a bus or a coach or a train, you have a psychological profile because we don't want people committing murder-suicide by, you know, we had that horrible experience with that German 
airliner that was flown into the side of a mountain. Murder-suicide is a thing, and it's a result of people suffering some form of psychosis. And so even bus drivers, I understand, have psychological profiling. And yet companies and other workplaces are appointing people to positions of immense power. Driving their bus. Driving their bus without having any understanding of what psychoses and character flaws they may have. Yeah. And, and, I was, and it I was, shocks me. It shocks me. And I was talking um, with um, uh, David Heron, I think it was, about boarding schools and boarding school survivors, the book by Nick Duffel called The Making of Them. Oh, it'll mm. be the making of them. Send them away. And I, I did go to boarding school, but there were some pretty screwed up people who mm. were away at boarding school and, and cut off their, their love and their empathy and their emotion because their parents uh, must hate them because they sent them away to prison. Mm. And so therefore, you know, don't blub. It's not, and, and all this kind of... But that kind of machismo is certainly in the male hierarchy and some females who've been to female <laughs> boarding school in the top of business. And they mm. don't... They're not really in tune with reading how people feel or even caring about their impact on others, particularly Mm. if they're in this group of the white collar psychopaths. So say a bit more about how people spot them. So um, so, uh, rather than me um, chunter on about it, um, I would advise anyone to look up a criminal offence now that we have within the UK, which... um, makes it an offence. It's called coercive control and it's in the Ministry of Justice website. And there are a, num- there are a number of points of evidence, behaviours that within a marriage or a significant partnership, um, uh, and it's normally a man controlling a woman, but that's only 60-40, it works the other way around as well, that those behaviours, if you read them through, uh, I can think of leaders in business who display those behaviours. Mm. And I've asked... Uh, I've asked many people if this is a criminal offence within the confines of a marriage or a partnership, a civil partnership, why aren't we considering this as a criminal offence within the workplace? Because those behaviours not only mean that people are suffering at the hands of that coercive, controlling, bullying behaviour, but actually it's a primary trigger for bad things happening. Yeah. So people getting killed... Uh, For example, uh, if you look at the response, uh, sorry, the reason why the Grenfell Tower tower block was clad with flammable cladding, you can probably find a whole range of decisions made by people who cared less about humans and more about their own personal income from a profit stream. You can look at the behaviour of the fire chiefs, and it's been some interesting developments this week around that, that the person who's now been promoted to the head of the London Fire Brigade, the commissioner, is the person who, as soon as he came on duty at 2.30ish in the morning, called them everybody out, said, get everybody out of that block. And, And it just shows you that actually when you have a capacity to demonstrate humanity, kindness and compassion to people, that is the antidote to it. Because remember that bullies themselves are bullies often because they've been abused. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I and saw, we have to have compassion for them. Well, back to your social work a bit. When I was a, a young uh, company commander in Germany, we had no social work. So, so social workers. So, in a way, as a young officer, I, I found that I was having to look after these soldiers. And I remember going with my sergeant. I went to visit him in his block, and above him, we heard some fighting and something going on. I said, "What? The, oh, it's it's Private Bram. He's upstairs." So we went upstairs, and um, he, he came to the door. I said, what's going on? And he had blood trickling from his nose. 
Uh, and he'd clearly been fighting with his little punchy, punchy wife. And, but he had a small, I don't know, three-year-old. And as he was talking to me, he, he was taking the blood and he was wiping it into the hair of his own child. And oh. it, we then later found out he was abusing his own children. So he'd been abused, she'd been abused, they'd abused their children. Mm. And it was just like shocking that you could see that kind of thing going on. And that was just a small snapshot of what goes on. Taking in the time we have, from the, the more shocking and the darker side of human behavior, what has encouraged you and inspired you in good character and, uh, and in the skills of developing good leadership? Mm. Let's perhaps spend some time on that, Roger. Yeah. Um, so that's a great question, Jonathan. And I would say that it comes from, so one of the words I try and invite my audiences to spontaneously combust with is the, the, the four-letter word that begins with L, finishes with E, and the power of love, yeah. um, which is very uh, disruptive for many senior leaders in business mm. because they don't understand it. Uh, and they don't understand um, the power of... Um, so the Greeks have three words for love, philos, agape, and eros. Well, clearly, eros is inappropriate but it's actually probably more demonstrated, hashtag me too, in the workplace yes. by narcissistic sociopathic leaders because they lack agape, which is love for humanity, and philos, which is comradeship and friendship. And, uh, and uh, if you look at the religious and philosophical traditions, so every major world religion and the philosophies of Buddhism and humanism um, put love at the, as the course. The most important virtue we have is our concern for other people. Yeah. And in fact, we need to extend that beyond other people to the other species that we rely on for our existence. Which, and I would say the most important power we have and the power we need to use to make a better world is the power of love, compassion, uh, care, self-sacrifice, not too far away from your heritage mm. where you know the former commandant of sandhurst famously once said to the passing out parade go out and love your men mm. and he didn't mean that in any biblical sense he meant it in the in terms of philos and yeah. agape serve to serve to lead very very powerful roger and and so if we were to take it in the final final few moments. What would be your final tips to people on, on any particular theme uh, that you'd like to share, um, you know, to, to help them develop the skills of being more inspiring in the way they lead the people they've got working beside them, with them, in their teams? Because mm. we really want to focus more on teams rather than yeah. the ego and the super sure. superman, superwoman. So uh, my tip is whatever you do, spend time getting to know the people you work with uh, at a deep enough level that they're comfortable with and you're comfortable with because that's how trust is built. Yeah. Um, and what I tend to do is I tend to, when I meet someone, it's normally for about 90 minutes and it starts off with introductions and then we talk about the business. The introductions normally take at least half an hour and I go first and I talk to them about my life journey, the important things in my, and I start off, hello, I'm Roger, I'm 61. 
I'm the son of a preacher man. Um, I'm the third of four children. I'm married to Jane. And I go through all of this and I talk about my love's fears and hopes, which then, then gives them the opportunity to do the same. And once you've created that psychological safety with someone, that deep connection, then the most amazing truths are revealed. Mm. Um, and I would say, if you're looking to build a team, and there is a caveat here, which is, don't ask people to uh, disclose more than they're comfortable with, but you will be surprised at how much people are willing to share once you declare your own vulnerability and yeah. say, I'm okay, you're okay. Yeah, so again, it's about leading by example. Great exactly. advice, Roger. Roger, thank you very much indeed. You, thank you, you, Jonathan. You are fascinating and that we could chat much more and I, I would encourage people to spend time with you and, and, and um, learn about this crucial area, which will help both in uh, leadership, but also in the way we look after our planet and the environment. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.